all you beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. It has been a minute. I am so glad to be back with you after having taken a few months to finish up a very special, but I will say intense project that I've been working on. As many of you know, I've been writing a book, and I know it seems like I've been writing this book for over a year now. That's because I have been. (laughs) Well, in some ways, I've been writing this book for more like 10 years, but the long story short is that I turned in a manuscript in July. But as I'm still learning my voice as an author, I ended up almost rewriting the book in a way from July to January. And then all the way through to the end of February, there was still more editing to do. And I finally completed that phase of the journey, and I'm really glad about it. I do not want it to sound like I'm whining at all. I am so incredibly grateful for this opportunity. Like I've pinched myself several times almost in disbelief that it's really finally happening. It's just that it was a workload that I was not exactly prepared for. <laughs> I have a whole new respect for authors, that is for sure. But thank you for your patience with me. You might remember that way back when I started this podcast, I told you that for the time being, the podcast was going to be my book. Well, that scenario got flipped upside down as the book has had to become my podcast for a while. It's just one that you won't get to hear or read for a little while longer, but more on that to come. It's been quite challenging with writing the book, and even as I've started to prepare for the relaunch of the podcast, I find myself in this habit where I'm only opening the Bible to prepare for something rather than to partake of it. So there have been days where I've had to choose to push aside the preparing until I'm back in the habit of partaking. I can't pour out if I'm not letting truth pour in. I can't feed anyone else if I'm not allowing myself to be fed first. But on top of that, the most time-consuming part of writing the book really was the study of the scriptures and desiring to handle that. Part of it was such honor and care with the care that it deserves. And that goes for the podcast as well. I prepare for these episodes for days on end. You might have seen my post on Instagram a few weeks ago about feeling slow. It was a picture of my thinking chair with about 20 books stacked up on my ottoman, several empty water bottles on the floor, papers and stacks all over the floor. I think I was multiple coffee cups deep that day, just feeling like no matter how hard I worked from sun up to sundown, I couldn't get ahead. I stated in the post that life inside this little realm of mine feels slow as a snail sometimes, while I imagine the world outside just speeding by. I have to keep reminding myself, and any of you who feel like this today too, that God is my portion, and I will trust Him with all He's put in me. I can only do what I can do today and trust Him with the rest. And what is truly required of me today is to offer my whole heart to God and to love those that He's put in my path. It's okay to feel slow. God will not leave us behind. This podcast in particular is something I just can't seem to rush. It is time-consuming in particular because of the way that I prepare for these episodes, but also because I write these episodes as if I'm writing a book. I got to tell you, I marvel at my friends Jenny Allen and Annie Downs and Rebecca Lyons who can 
essentially just press record and go to town. (laughs) Now, that's not to say that they don't prepare. I absolutely believe they prepare. But when it's all said and done, they can just push record and start teaching, and it just flows. And I really do think it's easy for them. Whereas this style of podcast is a little bit more like songwriting. It takes a lot of behind the scenes, sitting with different melodies and lyrics, if you will. I felt a bit validated when I recently discovered that some of the top podcasters in the mainstream actually prepare for and write their podcasts like I do. I actually thought I was the only one. (laughs) I think it's because I'm an artist. I find that I feel passionate about the process just as much as I do the product. I also think that God loves to use the process as much as He does the product. As musicians, There's much preparation that goes into an album, say, being released. And part of that is making sure that from the very first song, you pull people in. You're allowing them to be taken by the hand on a journey. A really good album does that. And the hope is by the time you've listened all the way through to the last track, you feel hemmed in, understood, and not alone. I think a good podcast can do the same. I love how author and popular podcaster Malcolm Gladwell said, there's a certain kind of whimsy and emotionality that can only be captured on audio. I have to believe that this has something to do with the fact that we are culturally on visual overload. And there's something so rich in exercising this gift of listening, isn't there? It reminds me of when the kids were younger in the early days of homeschooling. Some winter afternoons, it seemed that there was nothing left to be done but for me to open a book and read out loud and for all of us to just get swept up in an adventure. Whether it was an escape to Narnia or a day in the life of Laura Ingalls and her little house on the prairie, or maybe even checking in on the boxcar children to see what they were cooking up for supper. Whatever it was, I'd tell the kids, listen carefully and make a movie in your mind while I read. I've been practicing this lately on my own as I've taken on the adventure of reading the Bible all the way through. I've attempted this several times, as I'm sure you have, but you probably succeeded. (laughs) I think you'd find it a bit comical if you watch me each morning. I actually have two Bibles open the entire time. I have my study Bible open, even though this is not what I'm actually reading from. I'll go ahead and tell you it's because the font is too small. Let's face it, I'm over 40. (laughs) But I use it because I find myself wanting to look up about every other line I'm reading. The other Bible I have open is my ESV archaeological Bible. By the way, Mom, I keep forgetting to tell you that this is what I bought with my birthday money from you and Dad, and I love it. I love it not just because it has a really big font, but because now that I've been to the Holy Lands, as I read, I can place the movie I'm making in my mind on location, and I can visualize the story in a whole new way. I can look at the maps, and I can actually orient myself in a way that it grounds me and reminds me that these things really happened. I'll never forget one afternoon in the city of David, overlooking one of the sites that is believed to be one of King David's homes. Our Jewish guide, Shai, sort of squinted at us through the afternoon sun and said, most of you take all of this history and archaeology for granted. You don't really need it because you have your faith. But he said in so many words, I need it. I need to see for myself that when the Bible says that Nehemiah or Isaiah or Jeremiah were in a certain region during a certain era, I need to see that it all lines up somehow. 
And as he got off of his little soapbox that we couldn't have all loved more, he said, just so you know, you should take your Bible quite literally as these things have and continue to line up all the time. You might have seen another quiet little post on my Instagram this past November. It was a video and a picture of Nathan and I standing in front of the Sea of Galilee. I purposefully didn't tell anyone publicly that we were going over because I felt deep in my heart that the trip was just to be very hidden. There were just about 27 of us in our little group. Nathan was with me, of course, and some dear friends of ours from Atlanta, as well as my best friend, Molly Moody, who has been a guest on this podcast. And then my beloved brother and sister-in-law, Eric and Kristen Hill, were with us as well. And I had just about as much fun watching them enjoy Israel as I enjoyed it myself. I need to make an Insta story for y'all and just load all of my trip pictures in there for you to see. I'll have to maybe go to my parents' house, though, because I can't really story out here in the boonies because of our internet, but you might remember that Eric and Kristen wrote and released a book last year called The First Breakfast, which is full of beautiful pictures of Israel. In fact, if you're looking for something to read as you approach Easter these next few weeks, this 40-day journey would be beautiful. You can get it online wherever you buy books. You'll love it. But so often on our Israel trip, I'd look up where Eric and Kristen were sitting on the bus that we were traveling in, and they'd be holding up their book up to the window, matching the photograph to the real thing, marveling that they were getting to see with their eyes some of these monumental places in Israel that they only thought they'd ever see on film. It was especially beautiful and actually extremely emotional for us all to be together in Galilee. I actually write about it in the book, and I bawled through that entire chapter. When we pulled into our hotel that night, which was right on the water, It was already nighttime outside. But knowing that we were going to be staying there for the next three nights, I decided that I was just going to wait and see it in the morning at sunrise. But that didn't stop Eric and Kristen. They literally left all their bags just sitting in the lobby and hightailed it down to the water. Part of me really wanted to go with them just to be like a fly on the wall to see their reaction. But I also just knew they just needed that minute together. I do know that a lot of tears were shed on that water's edge that night. The Sea of Galilee was my favorite in particular, I think, because it was the most untouched by man of anything else we saw. Everywhere else, you kind of have to deal with the hustle and the bustle of the city. You see houses and businesses built up on all the hills. But the Sea of Galilee and the surrounding areas had enough wide open space that it just doesn't take a stretch of your imagination to see Jesus there in your mind's eye with the people that He loved, the place where He first called His disciples to come follow him. Young men who had learned their father's trade of fishing. Eric and Kristen actually write about this in the first breakfast, how according to Jewish tradition, these brothers, Andrew and Simon Peter, as well as James and John, they would have all been taught the scriptures formally as young boys, but only the gifted students were encouraged to approach a rabbi and ask if they may follow him. The rabbi would either accept them or encourage them to go pursue another trade. So the fact that these brothers were all in the fishing business together tells you a lot. But God, you just have to love how He loves to use the unassuming, the unexpected, and even the uninvited to carry out His plan. He sees the heart, and He knew that those boys would have what it takes by His Spirit to love Jesus and follow Him, and even co-labor with Him to change the world. In fact, 
They're the reason that you and I know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? They are the ones who continued to spread the way of Jesus. And here we are. This way of Jesus is actually going to be our theme for the next little bit. But surprisingly, we're not going to be in the Gospels that much. We're going to be in the Psalms. Several months ago, I felt that the Lord had given me the idea to have Psalm 119 be our home base for this next little bit. And while I'm still going to stick with that plan, it didn't come without a pause to make sure that this was indeed the direction we should go. For starters, it has been a heavy week here in Nashville, Tennessee. You've no doubt heard and seen the terrible devastation from the tornado that hit downtown, as well as some surrounding counties early Tuesday morning on March 3rd. It wiped out many, many homes and businesses, and of course, the loss of life is what is so unimaginable to wrap our minds around. The death toll is now around 25, five of those being children, and there are still a few people who are missing. Nathan and I woke up as it started to storm, and we were watching the radar and could see that Nashville was in the direct path of the storm. But you know, you just sit there and you think, the odds of it really touching down. You think everyone's going to be okay. And then we just started seeing images coming in on the news at 1.30 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. And we slowly started to realize the enormity of the devastation. Of course, we're seeing pictures of neighborhoods that we know our friends live in, And I just started praying, Jesus, be with them. After taking a little nap, I woke up to texts from friends and family far and wide. My friend Michele was in Israel at the time, and she was texting me, as well as my sweet friend Lila from Mexico. So many people in between as well, just reaching out. It's moments like these that the most important things in your life become crystal clear, right? It's the people. Nashville has been through a lot. And this is not the first time that tornadoes have ripped through this town. And of course, I've talked about the great Nashville flood of 2010 on this podcast before. But all I could think about Tuesday morning as I sat and watched the news is that Nashville has never wasted what they've been through. When you've seen hard times, you know how to live through hard times again. And you know how to respond in hard times. I'm blown away at the generosity of spirit and how collectively the church has responded, being the hands and feet of Jesus. These are the moments when it all becomes real, right? And what's beautiful is that it isn't just about rebuilding buildings. It's about the rebuilding of human hearts as you see Christ's love truly on display and emerging into these neighborhoods. Thankfully, our news teams here have been generous in spreading coverage of kindness and hope the hope we have in God and even in each other as we come around one another in times like this. In fact, my dad texted me this morning a picture of Billy Ray Cyrus's Instagram that had been featured as breaking news on News Channel 5 here in Nashville. And it was a picture of the marquee of the little church that my dad pastors. Before the tornado hit, they had placed the words, faith is a verb out on the marquee of the church, and Billy Ray passed that sign the day of the tornado and loved it and decided to share about it. And then our local news here picked it up. It's amazing, isn't it? What a stark contrast the gospel is in these days that we're living in and how the peace of Christ in the midst of troubled times truly does just stand out. Some of you may have heard that the first COVID-19 case was discovered 
right here in our little county this week as well, the first to be discovered in Tennessee. Our public schools are closed today as well as some days next week to do some deep cleaning. It's almost like the tornado coverage that night where piece by piece, things keep getting uncovered each day that make the repercussions of this virus feel enormous too. I reached out to the patrons of my podcast who I'm so grateful for, who have stuck with me through and through, to tell them I was pausing one more afternoon to make sure that I'm responding in the way that God would have me respond in these days. I told them I was feeling the need to know how to respond to my own children in my own home first, as all three of them seemed to just kind of want to hover longer around the table last night. We ended up praying together because I could sense their need to be led in that moment. And you know, they're most likely never going to tell you that they want and need to be led in that moment, but they are looking for leadership in this and at least the ability to just be able to talk about it. I've appreciated our home church here in Franklin just addressing it from the pulpit while we're all hovering near too, right? We want leadership as a church. We're all hovering near. And it's a comfort to know that they are taking it seriously. We got an email that says that we will still meet publicly this week, but we won't be passing the offering plates. People will need to give online. We'll have prepackaged communion available as they won't be passing the communion tray. We take communion every week at our church, and it's actually one of my favorite moments every week. In the past, we have always greeted each other for a minute during the service, which used to be hugs and handshakes, but now they're asking people to just kind of smile and wave. <laughs> and we were told that there would be door holders that would hold the doors open for us, literally, that the nursery volunteers would be the only ones to touch the screens for checking in. And then, of course, it was followed with advice of lots of hand-washing people and don't touch your face. My friend Laura, who is a nurse in Atlanta, says that her advice is actually, she takes it a step further, wash your hands and shut your face, (laughs) as in, don't spread the fear and the hype, just wash your hands and get on with your life. But I think the trouble is there's just so much noise out there right now. We've got politicians screaming at each other. We have fear-based hype mixed in with a little bit of truth here and there of what's really going on with this virus. And then you have people who just don't know what to say, so they don't say anything at all. So I've just been asking the Lord, what am I supposed to say? And I think the response is that I feel okay to push forward with Psalm 119 being our home base. But I wanted to preface it with everything I just said, because Psalm 119 is not for the faint of heart, (laughs) y'all. I've looked over it and over it for the last several days, and I'm like, Lord, really? I'm a little bit scared of this psalm, to be honest with you. But I'm like, Lord, there's trouble all around us. Shouldn't we just stick to the not-so-heavy parts of Scripture right now? Don't we just need Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Or maybe Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Don't we need these? Yes, we should read them every day, memorize them, frame them in our homes. We need the Psalms right now. But I wonder for you and I to endure in these days, what does it look like to press into some of the parts of Scripture that are not so soft and welcoming and inviting? Chapters that are maybe, you know, shorter (laughs) and easier to understand. This isn't the only passage we'll be in as we go, but I think there's something for us in Psalm 119 that might unlock some ways that you and I might can view other parts of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, in a new way. 
Today's episode is going to be a little bit longer in length than the rest of these episodes in this series to come. For one, I had some catching up to do with y'all. Plus, I wanted to be able to acknowledge what is going on in the world right now and also to set this psalm up in a way that we truly feel like we can proceed together in this truth in spite of and even because of all that's going on in our world. Psalm 119 has stood out to me for years, one, because it boasts 176 verses. It's actually the longest chapter in the Bible and is even longer than some of the books of the Bible, so there's that. But also, at first glance, it can come off really repetitive and honestly kind of sound a bit pious in a way, impractical for us even, with statements like, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. I will say, I feel like this chapter reveals a lot in me personally, how I view the Bible, especially the Old Testament. I know that I ought to be patient to know the Bible and understand it and even love it. But when I read through Psalm 119, as well as other parts of the scripture, I find myself a bit fatigued at times, maybe even a bit ashamed that I don't always have this deep down love that the psalmist seems to have for God's precepts and His rules and His commandments. More than 25 times, the psalmist says that he delights and loves and longs for the statutes or rules or precepts of God. One verse says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. It's difficult for me to quickly pull out the takeaway from Psalm 119 with all its talk of commandments and rules and statutes when it feels almost overwhelmingly unattainable to me, especially on a week like this one. And I don't know what to do with the fact that when I read Romans 3, it tells me that the law actually brought knowledge of sin and that the righteousness of God became known apart from the law. Acts 15 tells us that the law was a heavy yoke on the neck of the disciples, and it was a very hard thing to bear. So how do we delight in the law of the Lord if we're now under grace and the law of love? How could we possibly be comforted by God's commandments and His rules in the cultural moment that we're sitting in? Because of these questions, we're actually going to take Psalm 119 pretty slow. I don't feel so bad about this when I hold in my hands an entire book, an exposition of Psalm 119 called The Golden Alphabet, written by Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s, as well as another book on Psalm 119, an exposition written by Charles Bridges from the 1700s, one that Charles Spurgeon claims is worth its weight in gold. But a more modern-day commentary on Psalm 119 that I've been so grateful for is called Bible Delight, Heartbeat of the Word of God, Psalm 119 for the Bible Teacher and Bible Hearer by Christopher Ashe. Christopher himself recommends taking Psalm 119 slow and studying it over a longer period of time. He makes the point that if we use what's called a nugget strategy, which is us kind of skimming through and finding the stuff we relate to or the stuff that makes us feel better about ourselves or what we're going through, we're going to miss the rich, deep dive that Psalm 119 truly is. Or he says that we might settle for just a theme strategy where we try to fit the passage into a certain theme that we're studying or dealing with or teaching on, which is okay, as long as we don't stop there or only extract the things that jump out or present themselves as relatable and understandable and even comfortable. This was immediately convicting to me because I'm afraid I'm guilty of treating the whole Bible like that. Well, I'm going to adopt several of Christopher's navigational points from his wonderful Bible Delight book as we go, along with snippets from these other two commentaries as well. 
First off, I love how Christopher Ash refers to the psalmist, the writer of Psalm 119, as the singer. I think you could guess why I love that in particular. And I'll tell you, it's not just because I'm a singer, but you know that I've challenged you, that you are a singer too. You were made to sing to the God who made you, and you were made to sing over the people that He's put in your path to love and raise up. But in order for us to truly pray and sing this psalm, we must first understand it. Christopher Ash says of Psalm 119, this psalm opens for us a window into a world where the people of God love the Word of God. It invites us not just to look in through the window as into a strange world, but to climb in it, to enter this world and live in it as we too sing the psalm. He continues, so as we read, let us ask ourselves three questions. Do I understand it? Can I feel it? Am I willing to sing it? I relate to those three questions, especially when I'm learning a new song to lead people in worship, whether it's someone else's song that they've written or one that I wrote. Yes, even the songs I've written, I still have to learn to sing them. In fact, there have been many times that I almost gave up on songs before I even led them. Nathan would tell you that I truly almost gave up on the song Waiting Here For You that I recorded on a live Passion album several years ago. Rehearsals felt like a wrestling match between me and that song. If you listen to it now, you might not ever imagine that I had to fight for it, that I had to over and over ask myself, do I understand this? Do I feel this? Am I willing to sing this? Honestly, it wasn't until I actually led people to sing that song with me that it finally got under my skin and into my heart. And how beautiful that we have the privilege to get to approach God's Word in this way, to respect it, to realize that it's a song He wrote to us and for us, and we are wise to respond, to lean over it and say, do I understand this? Do I feel this in my bones? If not, God, teach me how. Am I willing to sing this with my life? can't imagine anything better than singing the Word of God, so I don't know about you, but I'm in, even though this might not be easy. Psalm 119 actually sings a bit clunky when it's sung in English because the psalm originally in Hebrew was an acrostic, actually the most elaborate in the Old Testament. So for each set of eight verses, each line of those eight verses starts with a corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. On each episode, we're going to take just a little bit of a dive into each Hebrew letter, This is because it is a bit of a treasure trove all on its own to look at the Hebrew alphabet. To honor this very special language, my daughter Eliana has been taking on the task of painting for us each of these Hebrew letters in the acrostic psalm. You can see those on my Instagram as we go. The first eight verses that we're going to look at today in Hebrew all began with the letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It is spelled A-L-E-P-H, or sometimes you can see it A-L-E-F. It is the source of the Greek letter Alpha, and of course, the English letter A. It does not have a sound of its own, actually. It has to have a vowel attached to it for it to make a sound. According to HebrewForChristians.com, the letter Aleph is known as the father of the alphabet, or the Alephbet, as they would call it. Aleph is preeminent in its order and alludes to the ineffable mysteries of the oneness of God. It also goes on to say that in pictograph, the letter was drawn as a head of a bull or ox to represent strength or a leader. The pictograph is what scholars believe God would have used to write the Ten Commandments. 
Exodus 31.18 says that God actually wrote the Ten Commandments with His finger onto the stone. It's amazing. The pictograph later evolved into a Hebrew script called Ancient Paleo-Hebrew before evolving a few more times into the letters that are used today in the Hebrew alphabet. Another very interesting fact about the letter Aleph is that when Jesus revealed himself to John in Revelation 22:13 as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, he would have said this to John in Aramaic, which is the same linguistic family as the Hebrew language. He would have said, "I am the Aleph Ta." Aleph of course being the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and Ta being the last. If you were to see Aleph Ta in pictograph, you would see a cross on the left, which was the symbol for Ta, which we'll look at later on, and then the head of a bull, which is Aleph, on the right. Hebrew is read actually right to left, so that would read Aleph Ta. I'm going to treat you kind of like our tour guide did in Israel and just give you some facts here and let you decide what you think. Apparently, all throughout the Hebrew Bible, these two letters, Aleph Ta, can be found side by side in strategic passages all throughout the Old Testament. These two letters appear together in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. If you read it in the Hebrew Bible, it reads like this, In the beginning created God, Aleph Ta, the heavens and the earth. Some scholars would tell you that these two letters together are not some kind of mysterious symbol of Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. They would say that these two letters together simply form a preposition that means something like with, or in this case, they would tell you in Genesis 1-1, the Aleph Ta mark the heavens and the earth as the object of the verb created. So if you see these two letters that kind of form a word, Aleph Ta, in the Hebrew text, it's telling you that a definite direct object is next. However, it is quite beautiful when you read texts like Zechariah 12.10 titled, Him Whom They Have Pierced. It can be read like this in Hebrew text. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, capital M-E, Aleph Ta, whom they pierced And yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Note here too that in pictograph you would have seen here the Aleph Ta as the head of a bull and a cross, which some scholars would say point to a lamb to slaughter and then a cross. Even if these two letters, Aleph Ta, just point to a preposition with, or if it's just telling us that a definite direct object is next, it sure is set down in some strategic places in Scripture that are quite interesting. There are many of God's names that begin with the letter Aleph. Of course, Adonai and Abba, which I've talked about a lot on this podcast. We've also talked about Elohim. It begins with an E as we see it in English, but in Hebrew, Aleph would stand silent at the beginning. This plural name of Elohim that starts with Aleph means God as the creator, and this name is actually plural, which is beautiful, as it might explain that all throughout Genesis, we see that God says us, we, and our. For instance, let us make man in our image, Genesis 1.26. This points us to the fact that there was a plurality 
and fellowship already from the very beginning of time in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. We just looked at how Jesus declared that He is the first and the last. And here, God clearly says that there is no God beside Him. So clearly, they must be one and the same. One last bit on this beautiful letter, Aleph, and I'm not kidding you that we are barely scratching the surface of all the hidden meaning just in this one letter. But if you look on my Instagram, you can see Eliana's lovely letter, Aleph, that she painted for us. And you'll notice that Aleph is made up of a slanted line down the middle and then two arms or what they call yodes that extend out. One arm is raised up toward the heavens and on the other side below, one arm is reaching down as if to touch earth. Aleph is a picture of the God-man who is Jesus, who came down from the heavenlies and humbled himself to become a servant, even unto death. I love that just the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet could lead us here to Jesus, the God-man, the Aleph Ta, the one who we're seated with in the heavenlies, as well as the one who is right here with us as we walk this earthly road. The road we walk here is troubled, and full of fear and the unknown. We watch the news and the enemy of our soul slithers in to pile up more fear, doing whatever he can to get us to believe that things are just being held together thinly by a string. But the truth is, Colossians 1.17 says that all things are being held together by Jesus Christ, the Aleph Ta, the beginning and the end. And this psalm is gonna point us to walk in his way. And as we sing it, we'll sing it from his life and his grace and his ability to live in us and through us the very things that we're going to learn to sing together. This is the first eight verses that are grouped together with the letter Aleph in Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Again, it might not be the warmest and comfiest of passages to sing and pray, but we're invited to sing it nonetheless. And to sing it, we must first feel it. And to feel it, we must first understand it. First off, there is a shape to the song, as many songs have shapes. Looking at each line as if it were a lyric, we are actually singing. You can actually note that the final word in verse 4 and the final word in verse 8 are essentially the same word. Verse 4 says, You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Notice that word, fully And then verse 8 says, I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. That word utterly there could also be fully. Christopher Ash in both places has translated this word to deeply. Your precepts are to be kept deeply, but do not deeply forsake me, God. This is evidence right away that we simply can't do this without him. Spurgeon says, this is the singer trembling lest he could be left to himself to carry out this task. I hope this causes your shoulders to just drop and rest already. We can't do this without Jesus. 
In fact, we must read this and pray this and sing this as those who are in Christ. First off, if that first verse stopped you in your tracks a little bit, the one that says, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, this word blameless here, it simply means integrity. It actually doesn't mean to be without sin, as none of us are without sin. What this is stating is, happy are those who walk in the direction of integrity. Integrity, as you know, is simply being the same person in private as you are in public and vice versa. Happy are those who walk in the direction of integrity and who walk in the way of the Lord. My ESB study Bible says that those who walk blamelessly are those who do what is right. And one striking feature of those who are blameless is that this becomes a part of the person's character. They begin to act out from who they are. And therefore, this goes beyond what the law requires. This is our first clue that there's more than meets the eye here that the boundaries God has given His people bring with them a freedom to grow into who we were always made to be. Isn't that beautiful? My study Bible also says that those who are blameless, those who look to God and walk in His ways, they are about the well-being of other members of God's family by learning to speak honestly with one another, by protecting their welfare, reputation, by promoting their holiness— by seeking the justice or the lifting up of others above our own personal gain. So those who walk in God's way and sing His song, we begin to invite others to walk in His way and sing His song too. The psalm even takes it a step further to say, happy are those who long for the way of the Lord. And I'm happy to say that all of these things are things that we can depend on the Lord for and even ask Him for. Did you know that you can ask Him for a longing for His Word, and to long to walk in His way. Imagine the Lord's delight in hearing us ask this of Him. Those of you who are parents, it would be like if your kids walked up to you and said, Mom, it makes me really happy to obey you. In fact, your rules, they just make me like you even more. And I, I just long to be like you, Mom. <laughs> that would be amazing, wouldn't it? You would probably drop everything and hug your child and do whatever you could to show them your delight in them over those words. Well, I can't help but think of Matthew 7, 7 and 8. It says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. But we must note that right before this in Matthew chapter 6, Verse 33, we're clearly shown what it is that we are to seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things that we need and desire will be added to us. Let us not be ashamed that we might have to daily ask, seek, and knock, so that a longing might be birthed in us to love the precepts and the way of the Lord, but also that we might seek His kingdom first above all else. I think before we can truly let go and feel this song and sing it, we have to understand on a deeper level what God's precepts are and what it might look like to long for His rules. (laughs) Christopher Ashe calls these words all throughout Psalm 119, the word words. And it's important that we not let these word words discourage us before we even start and trip us up as we try to sing this psalm. 
I mean, let's face it, these word words have not made it into very many modern worship songs that we're singing these days. We're not really going around belting out, I will build my life upon your rules. But I think once we know the secret behind these word words, we won't be afraid to let down our guard and sing, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Again, we're not really going to sing this as with a melody, but we want to deeply understand it and feel it so we're able to long for what the singer is longing for in Psalm 119. So let me speak out the word words that we're going to find continually and interchangeably all throughout Psalm 119. They are, depending on your translation, law, rules, instruction, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments, and word. The first four lines of this psalm are the foundational truths on which the rest of this entire psalm is built. In fact, the first three lines are more like statements of truth. And then verse four begins the singer's response to God all through the rest of the psalm. I'm going to read Christopher Ashe's rendering or translation here. So the foundational verses again are, blessed are those whose way is blameless. Again, not sinless, but those who walk in integrity towards God's way, who walk in the instruction of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. And now the response from the singer begins, to God, you have commanded your precepts to be kept deeply. Oh, that they may be firmly fixed, my ways in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart, When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Do not forsake me deeply. The singer is singing of only two ways to live here, to live walking in the way or to live forsaken deeply by God. That's a big statement, but I think we're starting to get somewhere with why there's so much passion and fire mixed with repetitiveness here. The singer is making it clear to God that he is choosing to walk in the way of the Lord And let us not miss that this singer is singing straight to the Lord, which is quite an intimate thing to do. Again, this goes beyond what was required of the law. (laughs) This gets into response and relationship. This leads us to understand that these word words are connected to something very life-changing for the people of God. These word words are covenant words. Christopher Ashe beautifully describes this in saying, the strapline of the covenant is, You will be my people, and I will be your God. It is the relationship created and established by the Lord with His people through the redemption out of slavery in Egypt. Because this covenant is created and established by the Lord through redemption, this means, and he says, and this for me has been the most significant breakthrough enabling me to sing this psalm, that these word words are two directional words whose first direction is grace. Only under grace do they call us to walk the way of the word. He says again later on, these words create and sustain relationship. We see this very clearly in Deuteronomy 10, 12, and he actually gives many more other scripture references in the Old Testament where keeping the commandments and statutes is equivalent to fearing the Lord God, walking in all his ways, loving him and serving him with a whole heart and soul. To keep the covenant word is not and never was ticking the boxes of a legal checklist. It was always intended to be a matter of the heart. I have to be honest that 
unless I had dug around in this psalm, I never would have immediately connected this to a covenant relationship with God. But now that I see it, it's all I can see. And if grace is the first direction of these words, it must mean that God's law, instruction, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments, or rules, and His word were poured out on us as a gift, as a beckoning in, as a way of protection, to act as a shield and a guard to grow us in His freedom of who we were meant to be, and even to show His love over His own. We're going to read and sing and pray these word words over and over as we go. So I want to start by understanding them a little bit more. We won't get into all of them this episode, but I'd like to just unpack one really quickly today. I want to lay some ground rules about this word, rules. The word, word, rules pops up mainly in the ESV translation, which Christopher, who I'm pretty sure is British, (laughs) thinks it not such a happy translation. The word rules, or some other places it's said as judgment, is actually this word mishpatim. It means the decisions of God, the judge, and it expresses the way He runs the world. Even just that, let's stop and remember that God is running the world, (laughs) right? This also has to do with His favor. In verse 132, we'll find that the singer sings, "'Turn to me and be gracious to me,' as is your judgment with those who love your name, or as is your rules with those who love your name. Christopher describes God's rules or judgment as a gracious decision of the Lord in favor of His people. So if your translation says rules, like my ESV does, as in verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. That can be said like, my soul is consumed with longing for the decisions of God which are favorable towards His own. This is us acknowledging that we love the way He rules the world. We acknowledge it. We look to it. We long for the decisions He makes because we trust that they are right and that He is the only divine judge. Again, this psalm is laying out two ways of living, to walk in the way of the Lord or to be separated from God and to be utterly forsaken. It seems very black and white, doesn't it? It was, and it still is. If we had lived in that time before Jesus, our place in God's grace would have been to strictly walk in His covenant way, which the singer here in this psalm is crying out to do. As new covenant people, our place in God's grace is to take our place in Christ Jesus, Aleph Tah. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we will not be deeply forsaken. And we can rejoice that the victory is ours. Heaven is ours. But I think there's something more for us here. Yes, Jesus is our righteousness. He is the only perfect sinless one, is the only one who can truly live out all that God has laid out. Yet these word words still sit here as part of the God-breathed, living, and active Word of God, that the Holy Spirit of God, who is one and the same with the Spirit of Christ, breathed out. And we know that Christ Jesus is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says He is the double-edged sword that penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. He judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. He is the Word of God. These words are not to be skimmed through for nuggets that make us feel cozy. They are treasures that ought to be mined for in this cultural moment we're in. 
And if these are grace-forward covenant words created to build and sustain relationship, wouldn't we want to come around them? It tells me that inside of our place in God's grace, which is standing in Christ's righteousness, there is freedom for us to grow beyond just the rules God has given us in this relationship that He first pursued us with. Freedom to become who we were always meant to be, the beloved of God, where we get to pursue a longing and a knowing, even a feeling and a singing of His Word. This is us getting to come around this beautifully binding and complex covenant promise to us, His people, one that He fulfilled with the precious sacrifice of His only Son, Jesus, because He still loves us and desires to be in relationship with us. This isn't just about that ticket to heaven. This is about us being restored to God to be in relationship. Beloved, His guardrails have always been for your growth. His precepts have always been for your protection. His commandments that you might blossom into the daughters and sons that He has dreamed that you would be all this time rising up freely in who you are, growing up beyond what even His law requires into people who are held by the law of love, loving because He first loved us. I'm excited to journey into Psalm 119 more with you. It's so fascinating, isn't it? That even in the places in Scripture that seem most unattainable and unreachable, we find a reaching Savior with one arm stretching with authority into the heavens and one arm reaching down with authority holding on to us today. And may we respond by asking, seeking, and knocking. May we start to understand it and feel it and sing it, this word that He's given to us as a gift. I'll talk to you soon.